What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Scott, thank you very much. I'm Tyler Matheson. In today for Kelly Evans, here's what's ahead. A new Bank of America survey shows overwhelming optimism for a soft landing and record optimism on the prospect for rate cuts. But the Fed's Christopher Waller warning about cutting too quickly and too much. So how do you position against this backdrop? Our market guest sees four areas of opportunity. Plus a punch in the gut, that's how our trader describes what some of the bank earnings have felt like so far. But he's buying three of the banks, tells us which ones and the one name he's avoiding right now. And some encouraging signs on housing. We'll check in at an open house and hear from buyers, and then we'll check in with a builder. The CEO of Taylor Morrison joins us live, but we begin with today's markets and Dom Chu has all the numbers. Hey, Dom. All right, so Tyler, it's been a bit of a whipsaw movement in the markets overall. It started off as generally a down day. We saw some moves back towards the session highs, and we saw some peaks of green for the NASDAQ composite, only to kind of head back down again. So generally speaking, we're off about a half a percent from the day so far. The Dow Industrial is down about 283 points, three quarters of 1% decline there, so fairly significant. Half of 1% declines for the broader S&P 500, 47.57 is the last trade there. And one half of 1% declines as well for the NASDAQ Composite Index, 14,892, the level there. One place, though, that we are seeing some signs of life are in that technology trade overall. Now, it's a little bit mixed right now, but generally speaking, mostly in the green. Microsoft, NVIDIA, Advanced Micro Network, Advanced Micro Devices, Palo Alto Networks, and Arista Networks, all among some of the stocks seeing some real relative strength so far today. And by the way, for Microsoft, also we'll put a star there, NVIDIA gets a star, Palo Alto Networks gets a star, and Arista does as well because each of these stocks made a record high at one point intraday so far today. So keep an eye on that big technology trade, still outperforming in certain parts of the market. And then speaking of that technology side of things, if you shift towards cryptocurrencies, we are seeing Bitcoin prices back above that 43,000 mark. Remember, we did make a run at 48, 49,000 at the highs on some of the optimism around Bitcoin ETFs coming to market, but still a little pullback since then up about one-third of 1% today. But Bitcoin prices, tie still a very big focus for some investors out there, given the recent headlines we've seen on ETFs. It's 43000 and change. I'll send things back over to you, Ty. All right, Dominic, thank you very much. A new Bank of America survey says 79% of investors are expecting a soft or no landing of the economy. However, cash levels are up, driven by a dip in optimism in bond yields. Our next guest says uh, he's still a buyer of short-term corporate and treasury bonds. We'll find out why from Michael Cugino. He's president and portfolio manager of the permanent portfolio family of funds. Michael, good to have you back. Uh, Among other things, you say you like so-called dollar-based assets in this market uh, environment. What are they and why? Yeah, good afternoon, Tyler. Well, today, notwithstanding, as the dollar's um, gone gone up, I guess, um, but uh, we tend to invest, most of our investors are U.S.-based, 
So that's one reason it takes away currency issues. It takes away the tax differential and foreign currency-based assets versus U.S. assets. Um, and also, we feel our portfolio is hedged. Whether the dollar goes up and down, we're not really making any bets on the dollar. Uh, we have assets that would do well in a declining or advancing dollar environment. You also like uh, strategic metals like gold and silver. Why? Well, we think in the long term, the Fed is probably close to being done, if not done. Um, and that's bullish for the precious metals, you know, gold and to some degree mm -hmm. silver. Um, and also, we think that that declining dollar, increasing global demand over the next few years, the the, um, you know, the economic activity relating to green assets, green energy, green general is really good for things like copper and other industrial metals. So we think there's a lot of tailwinds there, but you're going to have to be patient. So we like that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, so broad base. So we like the metals, whether they're precious or industrials. Michael, we're going to ask you to sit still for a moment as we have some breaking news that we're going to go to a Phil LeBeau for. We'll be back to Michael in just a moment. Phil. Tyler, we are looking at a decision in the JetBlue Spirit merger case, and it is against JetBlue and Spirit merging. The DOJ victorious a judge has decided this merger will not go through. Take a look at shares of JetBlue and Spirit, and that's why you see the reaction that you're seeing, especially with Spirit down, what, 47%? A judge, again, deciding that the DOJ has prevailed in proving that it would hurt competition if JetBlue and Spirit were to merge. So as a result, you will not see this merger between JetBlue and Spirit. Again, DOJ victorious in this case. Tyler, I'll send it back Is to you. Is there any route of, a pro of, of appeal for Spirit and or JetBlue here? Uh, I, I would assume that there is, but I don't know for sure, Tyler. And then the question also becomes, if you are a JetBlue in spirit, do you want to try to pursue an appeal? Uh, this has been a long process. And even though people said from the beginning, look, with this, you know, DOJ, you know that they were going to go against it. Uh, but they, you know, remember they had to outbid Frontier, JetBlue did, in order to get this uh, spirit deal uh, announced uh, and, and spirit agreed to it. So now the question becomes, do you want to go through that process if an appeal uh, is possible? I wonder if there is any partner for Spirit that would not arouse the ire of the DOJ. Great question. Uh, in this environment, I have to wonder that too, Tyler. Uh, you know, look, the people at Frontier long believed that a combination between Frontier and Spirit would make sense um, because there was not as much overlap as there would mm -hmm. be with JetBlue and Spirit. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, even with JetBlue saying, look, we will divest gates, uh, we will pull back uh, some of uh, the exposure that would have been there, especially in Florida and uh, parts of uh, the tri-state area, that wasn't enough. The judge said, you know, at the end of the day, uh, this is going to hurt competition. I'm paraphrasing here. And mm -hmm. as a result, uh, the merger is not going through. Well, if you're a holder of uh, Spirit Airlines and you're long, this is not a good day. You're down 60% on the no. session. All right, Phil, thank you very much. No. Phil and, LeBeau. But, but you knew it was a possibility, Tyler. Oh, yeah, we'll you knew it was in there. In so, of, I mean, uh, what both airlines have to say. Yeah, you got your eyes open if you're a holder there. All right, Phil, thank you very much. Let's go back now to uh, Michael Cugino. Uh, Michael, uh, thank you for your indulgence there. Um, let's talk about equities. And, and we, we've talked about... Uh, Bonds, we talked about dollar-based assets, we talked about gold and silver. Let's talk about your view in the equity market. You like energy and natural resources, semiconductors, and defense. 
Yeah, it, it starts to go back to my previous point on the commodity metals, um, but I would also throw energy into that mix. We think fossil fuels are going to be around for a while. That transition to green is going to be slow. Global demand is going to pick up. The world um, needs oil and fossil fuels. And so, we, again, patient investor, um, these companies pay dividends. The, the total return, I think, in these stocks over the long term is really good. Um, and that would include the industrial metals. We also like semiconductors, you know, with AI going on. Specifically, we own, you know, NVIDIA. Um, and that trade we're generally involved in Palantir technology as well on the software side. Um, but we like that area. Um, that's the computing power that needs to happen to keep uh, technology advancing. So we want to be in that space. We like defense um, because uh, Lockheed Martin, for example, because, uh, you know, the, the world is a dangerous place right now and getting more dangerous. And that company tends to benefit from that positive dividend, big dividend, again, a total return play and a reasonable price. On the bond side, we didn't really touch on it, but the strong dollar situation helps lower duration um, bonds generally. And uh, we like lower duration, high quality corporates and uh, and treasuries as well. We believe there's going to be a little bit more interest rate volatility out there uh, before we settle in on lengthening duration too long. All right, Michael, thank you very much. I appreciate your thoroughness and uh, your, your uh, holding on there while we had to break away. Michael Cugino with the permanent Hello. portfolio. Thank you again. Well, there's been pain and some gut punches. That's how our next guest sums up bank earnings so far. Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, the latest names to report this morning. For more on his takes and trades, Let's bring in our friend Jeff Kilberg, KKM financial founder and CEO and a CNBC contributor. He joins us for a special three buys and a bail bank edition. Let's start off with Goldman Sachs higher today after posting a revenue beat boosted by strength in asset and wealth management. Shares up more than 20 percent since November. You think it can keep going? I think it can, Ty. And Goldman Sachs, when you talk about them being one of the big banks, you have to remember that they do such a great job. And most of their revenue, nearly 45% of their revenue, is derived from trading. So they had a great year of trading. Yes, they did lag, only being up 16% in 2023. But this is a name I think you can own. And I think the banks, by broad swath in general, you're seeing the gut punch being assessed by the FDIC, this one-time assessment. They're still bailing out SVB, Silicon Valley Bank. $16.1 billion. So the overarching theme today of all these banks being in the red is due to the fact that they have to pony up. And you're seeing Goldman push up about $529 million going into that uh, insurance fund that got depleted from Signature Bank as well as SVB. All right, let's go to Morgan Stanley moving the other way uh, after earnings uh, revenues beat expectations. But that FDIC payout, another regulatory settlement, cutting into earnings in the first report under the new CEO, Ted Pick. Yeah, and I like Morgan Stanley here. I think if you look technically, Ty, it's right up against its 50-day moving average, potentially offering some support. But you have to remember, they paid $286 million into that insurance depletion. So you're seeing all these big banks, about $5 billion, really get a haircut today or a two-by-four to the back of the legs, it feels like. And I think there's an opportunity, though, as you continue to see the wealth management side of Morgan Stanley grow and provide uh, revenue, I think Morgan Stanley is another aim I want to own. And uh, the third buy on your list is uh, J.P. Morgan, the uh, sort of granddaddy of American banks. 
It is, Ty. I mean, a market cap of nearly $500 billion. This is an essential 40-portfolio name. This is an essential bank to the U.S. economy, to American way of life. And you see revenue. They had one of the best quarters. And we go just back to last Friday, that trading action. That's what we look at when we're trying to trade this, have a better understanding. So in the wake of that trading report, which was phenomenal, that was one of the best earnings reports they've had, you saw it go up about 3%. And sure enough, as shareholders realized that they were getting a punch to the gut of about 74 cents per share because they had to kick in nearly $3 billion to the coffers for the SVB and Signature Bank debacle we saw back in 2023. So I think you think about JP Morgan above its 50-day, above its 20-day moving average. This is a bank we want to own. But if you look in the bigger picture, 2023, this was the best bank. This is the best bank of anything we talked about. It's funny. Up I think 30%. Yes. I think of being a shareholder in some of these banks, kind of like being a member of a condo association where you get hit with an assessment at the end of the year to, to, to repair analogy. the curbs or something. All right, and, now for the and, bail. You know, uh, and that would be Bank of America reported last week missing on revenues as loan growth slows down uh, alongside economic activity more broadly. Why, why the bail here on this one? I'm bailing on Bank of America for a couple of reasons, but primarily, Ty, you saw last year when we saw interest rates move higher and the net interest margin, all these banks were doing the backstroke and swimming in cash in, you saw profits actually move lower in 2023. So that was a really hard pill to swallow as a shareholder of Bank of America. When you see that revenue drop the way it did, it was 50%. It was $7.1 billion. It went down to $3.1 billion in 2023. So I think Bank of America is a bail as they have a lot of hard uh, months ahead to kind of react. But at the end of the day, they're caught coughing up $2.1 billion as well to put in this insurance fund that SVB is Signature Bank. And yes, I keep on saying SVB because I can't believe we're in 2024. We're still talking about that regional bank chaos. Let's talk a little bit about the markets more broadly and how you assess the year so far and whether you think we where we are in this working through of what I'll, I'll say is a is a bit of a step back from an overbought situation that we with which we closed the year. Yeah, you could argue that some of the earnings or some of the performance in 2024 was taken in December of 2023. But I actually think this is quite healthy. I'm actually cautiously optimistic. Yes, you're seeing the 10-year oscillate above and below 4% as we try and measure and gauge. Are we going to see a rate cut in March? Is it not going to be in March? But I think there's a lot of momentum, the trajectory. There's a lot of cash on the sidelines. So we still want to own the market here. I think it's an opportunity as we see some churning or some back and filling. This is actually healthy consolidation as we're about to make a move above 4,800 in the S&P 500, in my opinion. Lastly, look at the VIX. The VIX is kind of telling us those expectations are aligning with my view. We, we uh, talked about the banks there quickly. Do you think the banks, relative to the market as a whole, are going to be something they definitely were not last year, and that is outperformers this year? I think they will outperform, but it's a really high hurdle to get over you know, coughing up $16.1 billion for all these banks collectively, that really hurts. You're, you're taking a bite out of profits. But I think this is going to be a one-time punch to the gut. So, yes, I do think banks are what you want to own moving forward. But be selective. I don't think you can own XLF, the broad swath, 71-holding ETF. I think you have to be very considerate, in particular, in the names you own, like a J.P. Morgan, like a Morgan Stanley, as well as a Goldman Sachs. All right, Jeff, thank you very much. Good, as always, to see you. Happy New Year. Jeff Kilberg, Happy KKM Financial. And coming up, uh, this weekend snowstorm couldn't keep people away from open houses. Our cameras were there and we'll bring you the latest on how homebuyers are feeling about prices, rates, supply. And speaking of supply, we'll get the view from a builder as well. Taylor Morrison CEO Cheryl Palmer joins us next live. Plus, Houthi rebels ramping up attacks in the Red Sea following the American-led strikes in Yemen. 
We've got the fallout for oil and shipping prices ahead. The Exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Phil LeBeau with some breaking news regarding Boeing. Take a look at shares of Boeing as the company has named an independent advisor to assess the quality of its commercial airplane manufacturing business. The independent, independent advisor is Admiral Kirkland Donald. He is currently the chair of Huntington Ingalls Industries. He will report directly to Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun. And again, this is a comprehensive quality review Boeing announced last week that it was going to be doing this review of all of its commercial airplane manufacturing facilities, the process from start to finish. Now we know who will be leading that. He is an independent advisor. Again, Admiral Kirkland Donald, who is the current chair of Huntington Ingalls Industries, will report directly to Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun. Tyler, back to you. I read an interesting article over the weekend, Phil, that had the opinion that because it appears that the problem with the door plug was a manufacturing-related problem as presumably opposed to a design-related problem, that may Correct. make it, in fact, harder to fix. Because a design-related problem, if you fix the design and then correct it on the individual aircraft, you're done. But here, you're, you're kind of, if it's manufacturing, there are so many steps, so many parts, so many uh, um, yep. a chain of uh, deliveries that it's tougher. It's hard to know for sure, Tyler. I'll take the counter argument to this. If it's a manufacturing and production issue and they can identify exactly where they, wh mm -hmm. what's gone wrong in the step from start to finish, then perhaps you can address it quicker. Bottom line is this. They still don't know exactly what caused the problems that led to that door plug being ripped off of the Alaska Airlines flight uh, that fortunately nobody was seriously injured when that happened. Once they find the root cause, Tyler, that goes a long ways towards saying, OK, here was the problem. Why did we not catch it in the process? Well, this is it's a very interesting thing, because the more and more you read the kind of systemic quality review that is seemingly being put in place here with this new independent advisor is uh, what is needed uh, at Boeing right now. Phil LeBeau will be following this uh, into the future. Phil, thank you. Appreciate it. You bet. 
Right, mortgage rates well off their October highs, but are they low enough to get buyers back into the market? Diane Olick has the details. Hi, Di. Hi, Ty, and the answer is yes. We're hearing from agents that there is a surge in interest from both home buyers and sellers, likely because of that recent drop in mortgage rates. The 30-year fixed hit a high of around 8% in October, then came down in November slowly and more sharply in December, now sitting around 6.69%. So despite four inches of fresh snow and freezing temperatures, buyers showed up to this open house in Detroit on Saturday. The renovated four-bedroom, three-bath home is listed at $254,500, well below below the national median price, but more than twice the Detroit median. Nikita Bell, who's currently renting, said the drop in rates got her out looking. I have a home in Georgia. That finance rate I got way back when the market crashed, and it's at 4%. So I know I'm never going to get 4%, but what I don't want is 9, 10, 11, and 12. It is not a credit card. It's a house. Now, a recent Fannie Mae survey found a record share of consumers think mortgage rates will drop further this year, and that may be why they're out now trying to get a jump on the competition. There is still not a lot for sale, but agents say they are expecting to see sellers get in the game also because of lower rates. Because rates have changed somewhat, so sellers are feeling more comfortable now with putting more, more homes on the market. It's not going to be as reflective right this moment, but as we inch and get closer to the spring, you'll definitely see more homes coming on the market as we've already seen over the last few weeks here, especially in the uh, beginning of the year. Now, the wild card, of course, is prices. They're still rising and the gains are accelerating. Detroit is now seeing the fastest home price appreciation of any major city in the country, beating out Miami for the first time, Tyler, because it's an affordable market. Yeah, who would ever have thought that five years ago, 10 years ago or whatever? Detroit, now the fastest growing market in the country price-wise. Diana, stick around as we bring in our next guest who has her finger on the pulse of home buying trends as her company builds homes in 11 states from coast to coast to starter to luxury. She expects to see strong demand in 24 with foot traffic already up 25 percent in just the first two weeks of January compared with a year ago. Let's bring in Cheryl Palmer, CEO of Taylor Morrison. Cheryl, nice to have you back with us. We appreciate your time. Well, thank you. Good to see you. Yeah, it's great much. to have you. Have you ever thought of changing the name to Taylor Swift? Might help. Big branding <laughs> move. You know, I heard about that when we took the company public 10 years ago, and that was Kramer's recommendation. But we've, we've <laughs> held on to Taylor Morrison. All right. Well, good for you. And uh, <laughs> just putting it out there as a possibility. So are you seeing what we just described there? Increased foot traffic, increased interest among buyers, and maybe even sellers as rates come off the boil a bit. Yeah, I think Diana said it very well, Tyler. I mean, we haven't reported our Q4 yet, but I think consistent with what you've heard in some market reports, you know, we saw rates really peak um, early in fourth quarter. And as Diana said, 8%, maybe even a little higher if you think about you know, what par what rates really look like. So today, moving, seeing rates down under 7% is significant. And, you know, the builders have a number of tools in their toolbox. And I think our ability to assist consumers in today's market um, is critical. It's probably one of the differences between the new home market and the resale market. Yeah, I am um, very optimistic. I think we have a nice, healthy backdrop um, for a very strong 2024. I want to squeeze in one more question before I let the expert, Diana, talk to the expert, you, Cheryl. But so, so you mentioned the tools that are in the toolbox. This is something that I've heard several times in talking to other builders. 
What are those tools? In other words, what should a buyer who is coming to look at one of your properties, what should they be asking for by way of financial assistance to help ease the buying process? Now, it's such a wonderful question, Tyler. And I would tell you there's a reason that we have to um, work with each individual buyer because there's not one answer to that question. I mean, I think there's a reason we just got named America's Most Trusted Builder for the ninth year. It's because we don't paint all consumers with the same brush. We have so many programs in the toolbox. Some buyers might need help with closing costs. Some might need that certainty of a 30-year rate today. And so we can help them with a forward commitment in buying down that rate. Some want to build the home of their dreams and might not close for six or eight months. So we have a program called Buy, Build, Secure that allows us to lock in below market rates for them. So it's really about us sitting down with each of our customers, understanding their needs and putting them together with the right program. All right, Diana, your question. Yeah, and I want to talk about those rate buy-downs, Cheryl, because we've heard a lot about them from all the builders across the board. That was a big incentive this fall to get buyers in the door, buying down rates as low as 5%. But how does that hitting your bottom line? We just saw KB Home Report, and they had good sales, but their margins were not so great. A lot of that because of those rate buy-downs. Yeah, you know, certainly, Diana, as you mentioned, with rates in the, you know, 8% range in the fourth quarter, those buy-downs were a little bit more expensive. We've seen the cost of those buy-downs come down quite a bit. So um, I think that when you look at all the ins and outs of, of what goes into that margin, to your point, and we look at some of the savings on construction costs, I actually think we're in a really good place. Each builder has a different set of programs, so it's hard to speak about another builder's report, but I feel actually really good about the trajectory as I look forward. And just to follow on that, would you expect to see more price cuts? Because we're seeing that from other builders as well. And again, that hits your bottom line. Yeah, I think it's very different um, by market. I think it's very hard, once again, Diana, to paint the country with one brush. In some markets, we're actually seeing prices go up. Um, In some markets, we're pulling back on incentives because just by the cost of of those rate buy downs, you know, coming down, we're able to pull back a little bit. And we haven't really seen really market price adjustments, I would tell you, for the most part, since middle of last year. There will always be certain circumstances. But all in all, I have a very constructive view on where we're going when I think about a positive momentum. And Diana, you know better than I do. When we think about rates dropping, I think it's You know, for every 100 basis points that we see rates drop, we see about 12% more consumers be able to afford a medium-priced home. So as I look forward, none of us know exactly what the Fed's going to do. We certainly saw, I think, some of that uncertainty today with the 10-year going up over four. But all in all, I do think that we'll see, you know, a steady rate environment in the sixes in, in 2024. Diana mentioned, uh, Cheryl, uh, that Detroit has now become an extremely, uh, you know, price, uh, well, prices are going up faster in Detroit than, than elsewhere. In your sales area, are there markets that are particularly hot right now and ones that maybe surprisingly are less so? You know, I can only speak to kind of what we saw last year since we haven't reported. And I would say generally same, same, but markets like Florida, Texas, 
Arizona, we've seen just very healthy demand. We saw, you know, in the third quarter, a little bit of a slowdown. And mm-hmm. I would tell you parts of the Pacific Northwest. Um, we've seen our active adult business across the country do very well. And one of the things I'm excited about with rates dropping is I think, you know, you really see that kind of first, second move up buyer back into the market, a little bit more sophisticated buyer that just didn't want to kind of hold on to the highest rate available back in the fourth quarter. Um, but I would tell you it comes down to communities more than markets right now. If you have good product to meet consumer needs in the right locations at the right price, I- I'd say we're seeing strength across the business. Taylor Morrison, Taylor Swift, whatever. Cheryl, thank you very much. We appreciate <laughs> it. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, Take Diana, care. thank you as well. Appreciate it. All right, coming up, a rare sit-down interview with a regulator who has arguably taken the toughest stance against big tech. She's seeing results in new rules and multi-billion dollar fines, so should Silicon Valley be worried that there's more to come? The exchange is back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, welcome back to The Exchange. The market's right now in the red as we begin this uh, shortened week. The Dow's low today was a negative 299. Right now off that, uh, down 227 points or about three-fifths of a percent. Uh, S&P 500 down about half as much in percentage terms. Ditto uh, the Nasdaq. Ten-year yield back above 4%, climbing there after Fed Governor Christopher Waller suggested the central bank may be slower to cut rates than the market expects. Uh, and that having the predictable effect of sending rates back a little higher, above 4% in the case of the 10-year note. We go to Pippa Stevens now for a CNBC News update. Pippa. Hey, Tyler. The GOP candidate debate on Thursday in New Hampshire is looking pretty empty, as Nikki Haley announced today that she won't be there unless Donald Trump takes part. Only Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is confirmed for the event. In a post on X, DeSantis wrote that Haley was afraid to answer the tough questions and that she was really running to be Trump's VP. Thousands of flights across the U.S. were canceled or delayed today as the winter weather continued to punish travel. According to FlightAware, storms in the Northeast delayed about 4,000 flights this morning. But that is an improvement on Monday when more than 10,000 flights were delayed. And Sean Diddy Combs will part ways with Spirit's giant Diageo. In a joint statement released today, Combs dismissed his lawsuit against Diageo, and Diageo retained full ownership of Ciroc and De Leon Tequila. Combs filed the lawsuit against the distiller in May, accusing the company of treating his two brands as inferior product. Tyler, back to you. All right, thank you very much, Pippa. And still ahead, 32 attacks in the Red Sea by Houthi rebels, uh, the latest coming just hours ago and targeting a Greek cargo vessel. Up next, we will bring you the administration's response and the fallout for oil and shipping prices. The exchange is back after this.
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Crossing the wires just moments ago, the U.S. has launched a new attack against Yemen-based Houthi rebels. It is the third round of retaliatory strikes in recent days, but those strikes have apparently done little to dissuade the Iran-backed group so far. They've now attacked 32 cargo ships, and the hostilities have companies that operate in the Middle East on high alert. Here's what Chevron CEO Mike Worth told Squawk Box about how they're handling their interests in the region. The risks are very real, and so much of the world's oil flows through that region that uh, were it to be cut off, you could see, I think, things uh, change very rapidly. Thus far, uh, we've been able to maintain our movements through the region, and I think others have as well. But uh, this is an evolving situation that we really have to watch very carefully. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken also telling Squawk Box there will be further repercussions if the attacks continue, particularly because they're impacting the global supply chain. So what will it stop to take the Houthi missiles? Uh, joining us now to discuss is Greg Brew, Iran and energy analyst at the Eurasia Group. Uh, Greg, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me on. You know, I'm going to start with sort of the economic effects of these attacks, uh, which are down near the, the, a pinch point in the Red Sea. Uh, generally, you've got container and shipping prices. What's happening with them? What's happening with oil prices? And then what's happening to the supply chain? We read of companies like Tesla in Europe having to suspend production because they can't get parts as quickly as they need to. So start with container shipping prices, if you wouldn't mind. Absolutely. So this is still largely a container shipping story. What well, we've seen a considerable increase in the costs that container shipping companies have to incur if they want to go through the Red Sea. This includes rising insurance costs, rising risk premiums. And that's a big reason why so many of them have opted uh, for the last several weeks to send their ships around Africa. It's longer, it's slower, but it's safer. And this has led to increased costs to consumers. You mentioned the impact that this has had on companies like Tesla. This is also largely a Europe story, a North Atlantic story. Those are the markets that are being affected here. So the impact on container shipping has been significant. Thus far, we're still looking to see what kind of impact this could have on oil and gas. Obviously, this is the Middle East. Oil and gas is a huge factor as far as regional traffic is concerned. And uh, the CEO of Chevron summed it up pretty well, I think. We're seeing an increase in risk, but so far, a lot of oil and gas is still moving through the region. So if, I, I don't mean to catch you on, on the wrong foot here, but if, the, if you can put numbers on the, on the difference in cost of sending a container uh, from the Middle East uh, into Europe using one route as opposed to the other, if it cost X four months ago, what, what multiple of X is it costing today? Well, as far as the insurance, what I've seen recently suggests that companies have to pay as much as 1% insurance costs on what they're putting through in order to take on the additional risk. And 1% on a you know, $100 million cargo is a million dollars. So is a company willing to pay a million dollars to cut a few weeks off of its transit route to incur that cost? Uh, you know, you'd have to talk to the companies. As far as what they were paying a couple months ago, it was surely considerably less. I would say at least an increase of factor of three or four as far as uh, where the situation was a few months ago. So this is an, incre this is an increasing cost to container ships. Yep. And also container shipping companies, as opposed to oil and gas, are generally risk averse. They don't want to see their ships getting targeted. They don't want to see their ships getting hit. So they decided quite early on to divert around Africa, as opposed to the oil and gas shippers who are generally more risk tolerant. They see the risks, they know what they're going up against, and they're still sending their ships through the Red Sea. How do you analyze or handicap the, the possibility that the strikes on the Houthis, their, their military installations, ammunition depots, radar, 
et cetera, launch sites, uh, is going to uh, affect their, uh, dramatically affect, uh, cripple their ability to mount these strikes, which often are mounted via drones or via speedboats that are, that are very hard to target. Absolutely. I mean, you summed it up so well. Uh, when these strikes came last week, I don't think anyone was surprised. The U.S. telegraphed the strikes uh, hours, if not days in advance. Everybody knew that they were coming, including the Houthis. They had a chance to prepare. Uh, these strikes have continued, right? We've seen at least three rounds of U.S. strikes over the last several days. They're trying to hit the Houthis. The strikes that happened today were preempted. The U.S. caught several Houthi launch sites off guards and were able to hit them before they were able to fire off missiles. But the Houthis are well dug in. They have elaborate and sophisticated infrastructure in place to launch these kinds of attacks. When it comes to missiles, you know, the U.S. can do a certain amount as far as hitting the launch sites, hitting the storage sites. But most of the Houthi attacks have used drones, which are very easy to store, very easy to launch in large numbers. Sure, they're easier to intercept. So the Houthis might have a harder time hitting passing ships, but I don't think these strikes will significantly reduce their capacity to launch these attacks. If anything, they may provoke even more attacks by the Houthis on passing shipping. And they're, they're clearly well, um, well equipped by Iran. They are veteran fighters, having been hardened uh, through uh, what has basically been a civil war and the intervention of uh, Saudis uh, on, the, on the other side to try and, and uh, counterweight uh, Iran's influence there. Talk to me about what you know, if anything, about uh, the missing Navy SEALs uh, who were involved in an attempt to board a, a Dow uh, last week and disable it, which I think they, they were able to do, but at the cost, apparently, of a couple of missing U.S. service people. Indeed. I think uh, at this point, uh, final reports on what happened to the SEALs, uh, we're still waiting for that. We're still not sure what has happened to the two missing Navy SEALs, but it does speak to the lengths that the U.S. is now going to. Not only uh, has the U.S. hit Houthi targets in Yemen, the U.S. is clearly trying to disrupt the Houthis supply link to Iran. As you mentioned, the Houthis count on Iranian support. Iran has been backing them for years, supplying them with weapons, know-how, technical support. It's very likely that some Iranian vessels in the area, in the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aden, are supporting the Houthis by supplying targeting information so, the, mm -hmm. so that they can you know, decide which ships they want to target. So Iran is deeply involved here. And the United States is trying to disrupt Iran's link with the Houthis without escalating, right? The United States is very concerned about escalating the regional conflict. It doesn't want to get into a shooting war with Iran, but it does want to degrade the Houthis any way that it can. Greg, thank you very much. Love the work of the Eurasia Group uh, and you and your colleagues. We appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good. All right. Meantime, analysts at Redburn Atlantic are highlighting one freight name they expect to benefit from the shipping turmoil in the Red Sea. That is the railroad Canadian Pacific Kansas City. Uh, Redburn expecting shippers to reroute from Asia to Mexico's West Coast and use the railroad's new land bridge to move freight from there to the U.S. East Coast, saving up to two weeks on transit time. Shares are coming off their best month in more than a year. For the full story, including how much upside analysts see in that stock, go to cnbc.com slash pro. And coming up, tech, one of the best performing sectors so far in this young year. But one of its toughest regulators has a warning for the industry. That is next. The exchange will be right back.
Welcome back to uh, The Exchange. Some of the so-called MAG-7 being accused of skirting EU digital competition rules in an open letter from a group of other tech uh, and media companies today. The letter comes ahead of a key March compliance deadline for the tech industry. And our Deirdre Boza sat down with Europe's competition chief to discuss what's next. Hi, Dee. Hey, Tyler, you're referring to the Digital Markets Act, which I won't get into, but there's the markets as well. And it was a rough first week of the year for big tech, but we've seen a flight back to quality. The Meg 7, they continue to lead the broader markets. But what you're talking about, Europe's antitrust chief, Marguerite Vestier, her recent trip to the Bay Area, it's a reminder that regulation will play a bigger role this year. She's the original antitrust bulldog who has taken on big tech and actually gotten results. She was in the Bay Area last week meeting with Tim Cook and Sundar Pichai and others, making sure that they are getting ready to comply with that Digital Markets Act, which she describes as a new era of regulation. There is some skepticism, though, so I asked her how the relationship with big tech here has evolved and what makes her confident that they're going to comply. It's difficult to say for sure, because obviously there is some paying lip service. Um, but I think in, in general, the atmosphere and the discussion has changed quite a lot. Uh, from the very early day when I opened the first uh, Google case, uh, walking up the hill in Washington, we said, oh my God, what's that woman doing? <laughs> uh, now you have sort of a, a much more nuanced approach to say, well, when, when the digitization happens all over our industry, uh, we cannot just let market power decide uh, who gets uh, the better part of this. So I think we have a much more nuanced uh, approach. We have very active uh, US authorities in the FTC and the DOJ. Uh, we have a very nuanced proactive discussion in, in the Senate. So it's a completely different situation. Meanwhile, guys, the efficiency drive, that continues with Google, the latest, planning to lay off hundreds of employees in ad sales. Bernstein calls it the years of efficiency with an S. And as we've talked about before, there could be an AI element at play as well. A survey unveiled in Davos this week revealed that a quarter of global CEOs expect generative AI to lead to headcount reductions. And I thought this was interesting. A Duolingo, um, is, it's a really interesting example here. The company is cutting contractors while leaning on more gen AI to produce content. For more of our content deep dives, go to cnbc.com slash techcheck slash TC Weekly. Guys. All right, Dieter, thank you very much. And coming up, Peacock's $110 million NFL playoff bet. Well, it seems to have paid off what the record-setting viewership for that Kansas City game means for the future of watching sports as well as Comcast's position in the streaming wars. That's next. The Dow is off 306. Now, down now at uh, session lows, down 332. Welcome back, folks, to the exchange for a chilly Tuesday. Shares of Comcast, that's CNBC's parent, uh, flat today despite making streaming history over the weekend. A record 23 million people watched the Kansas City Chiefs take on the Miami Dolphins uh, in the first ever exclusive live streamed NFL playoff game on NBC Universal's Peacock Saturday night with Taylor Swift in the house. It was also Peacock's biggest day ever, accounting for 30% of U.S. Internet usage during game time. Think about that. Joining us now to discuss what this means for the NFL uh, at the start of the playoffs, 
Uh, and the streaming era is Barton Crockett, senior media analyst at Rosenblatt Securities. Barton, welcome. I suppose Peacock passed the test. Not only did they pick up viewers, not only did they set records, they didn't crash. Certainly. Um, you know, they can uh, take the ball into the end zone and spike it. Um, they scored on this play. Um, can they uncork the champagne and say they won a championship? No. Um, you know, Peacock is still, you know, they've guided for tracking losses around $2.8 billion this year. Um, and the real uh, championship is not only growing subs, but gaining profitability, and, you know, from that gaining long-term kind of viability. Um, but I think what we see with this, with the consumer's willingness to sign up for a subscription service, um, put up audience numbers comparable to really anything we've seen on TV, um, is that the future of sports is streaming. This is where it's going. Um, and Peacock, Comcast, they're players. Um, they're able to, to put up some good scores. Are the leagues going to find comfort in this? In other words, there was a worry that if you didn't have the traditional legacy players, and you'll still have them, Fox, CBS, ABC, ESPN, so forth, bidding for NBC, bidding for this content, uh, and you were relying on streamers, they weren't going to be able to pay the same high prices that those other legacy providers had. This would indicate that the streamers are going to have the financial muscle, not just, uh, not just uh, the, the ability the, but the financial muscle to, to buy these rights. Yeah, I mean, you've got a proof point here that the audiences on streaming can stand toe-to-toe -to -toe today with television on premier sporting events. That wasn't the case a few years ago. No. Uh, it'll probably be more the case as time goes forward. With those eyeballs will come economics. So absolutely, what you've done is you've expanded the universe of players that can bid for these sports rights from media companies, uh, which was yesteryear, to media companies and streaming companies today, um, which is great if you're a league, it's great if you own a team, um, helpful for a couple of stocks I cover uh, that are actually leagues and teams. That would be the Atlanta Braves and Formula One. So uh, the sports story um, is certainly helped by that. Mm -hmm. Let's look at the streaming services. We have a graphic showing the relative size of those services, and there are seven mm -hmm. on the board there. Uh, I would yeah. say one, Disney, two, Max. Paramount is part of a legacy company. Peacock is part of a legacy media company. How many, how, and there's Peacock at 30 million subscribers, maybe ballooning some over the weekend because of that game. How many of these are really viable uh, as we go forward here? I mean, are there going to be seven major players or are there going to be three major players? What? Yeah, I think for... Players that are in the 200 million plus subscriber zone, there's only going to be a small number. Is it seven? Doesn't feel like that. Could it be three? Yeah, that seems more reasonable. Could there be a, a handful of flanker brands that are in that 30 million zone? Sure. Um, but Peacock's game, I think, is is to be a little bit bigger tent than that. The um, you know, so definitely, you know, one of the big kind of concerns has been that they're subscale. Mm -hmm. Um, but the ability to, you know, their plan has been to leverage the TV network, um, and invest in Peacock as kind of a flanker. And, um, you know, I think what happened this weekend is, is an argument that that can work and, uh, but they can't celebrate victory yet because clearly they're smaller and clearly they're still investing. Yeah. And, and lost 2.8 billion, uh, in 2023 by all estimates. Barton Crockett, thank you mm -hmm. very much. We appreciate your time today.
Great, thank you. That does it for The Exchange. Uh, Contessa Brewer is standing by, getting ready to join uh, us here. Uh, I'll join her on the other side of this quick break with the Dow down 320. We've got more market coverage coming right up. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.